Welcome back to the second part of our mini-series on the Ohio State University's fourth annual Women in Surgery Symposium. In this episode, we recap a panel session focused on leadership in surgery. Our distinguished panelists are leaders in various surgical fields at OSU. Proctored by Dr. Chelsea Horwood, a PGY4 general surgery resident, we talk about mentorship, sponsorship, and how to get a seat at the table when facing issues of gender bias. Well, it's a pretty big honor to be standing up here today leading a panel with some of the leaders, including one of my great mentors, Dr. Moffat Bruce. Can we just start by going through saying a little bit of what your role is and how you came into a leadership role, um, particularly what kind of made you motivated to reach out, um, especially early on in your careers? Good morning. It's really an honor. Thank you for the opportunity to be part of the panel. I'm uh, Gail Besner, and I'm the Chief of Pediatric Surgery at Nationwide Children's Hospital. I came up through the ranks, so I've been at Nationwide for many, many years. I think that you know when you have a leadership position like this, there, uh, there's a gradation of things you really, really love about your job and things that you just, you know you have to do in your job, but the mentoring is one of the you know, biggest pleasures of, of everything that we do. I'm Laura Pfeiffer and I'm an orthopedic uh, trauma surgeon. I was very fortunate in where I did my uh, medical uh, school, the Department of Orthopedics was in the forefront of having women leaders. There were two women faculty. I, I didn't even question it. It was just, okay, I'll, I'll go do that. And when I came here, I will say OSU is a significantly different place than it was 17 years ago. I asked the then chair, I said, when the next program director um, opportunity comes up, what can I do to make myself ready to have that role? So early on in my career, I was able to become a program director and I feel very proud because during that time, we recruited our uh, second uh, female faculty member, um, and we were able to change our residency program complement to where we had at least 20% women in our entire residency program. We've been able to maintain that even despite having passed the baton for, for program uh, director. Good morning. Um, I'm Susan Moffat-Bruce. I am a professor of surgery, um, the current executive director of the University Hospital and the previous chief quality officer for the medical center. Um, cardiothoracic surgery wasn't even on the list. So 5% um, of my discipline um, are women. And when I trained at Stanford, I was the second woman to go through a three-year program and the first one to go through and graduate seven and a half months pregnant. I'm very grateful because the, offer, the opportunities I've had here for the last 13 years are going to allow me to go on to my next position, um, which is the CEO of the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons in Canada. Uh, so in Canada, all subspecialties sit under one federally appointed um, entity. So I have 65,000 physicians and surgeons that I'm responsible for, but I also have to train all the residents. I actually heard a story yesterday whereby last year we had a female resident writing an exam, went into labor during her exam and would not leave because it was more difficult to try to get back into a Royal College exam than it was to go through labor while she was writing the exam. So this is an international phenomenon. I'm very grateful to have been part of this at OSU today and in the future. Next up, Dr. Ginny Bumgardner is a transplant surgeon at OSU and is in multiple leadership roles for research. 
I'm the Associate Dean for Research Education in the College of Medicine, so I oversee a lot of the research training programs for people who are along the physician scientist career. When I became a faculty member, I found that one of the things that I really enjoyed was training students, all kinds of students in the laboratory, because I enjoyed their development of becoming independent, developing their critical skills, becoming more confident, giving talks, their papers, that sort of thing. My name is Jerry Hewitt, and I'm the Chief of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Nationwide Children's Hospital, and I'm a professor here in the Department of OBGYN at Ohio State. So I came to my position um, at Ch Nationwide Children's Hospital kind of serendipitously. I was following the instructions of my second department chairman here at Ohio State, um, who is a huge feminist, and he would always say to me, Jerry, do what you love to do. Um, and hopefully you'll be halfway decent at what you love to do. But that's how you should spend your time, and that's how you're going to best advance your career. One of my earliest mentors was, were my parents, and my mom went back to work when I was in sixth grade. But she always said to me, some women would get upset because they would ask them to take notes at the meeting, and she said, that would never bother me. I would take notes, because then I could control what, I, what was documented and what wasn't documented, and I could control the minutes afterwards, and I could rephrase everything I needed to have it rephrased. So I mean, I think that that really stuck with me, that any task anyone has ever asked me to do, I've tried to do that task and to do the best of my ability, and I do think maybe you have to do 10 tasks great before you're recognized, and maybe other people only have to do four or five tasks well, but never turn down an opportunity to do well. Now that we've met our leader panelists, they answer a great question from the audience about identifying the right mentors and sponsors. Is it important for your mentors to be in the same specialty you're pursuing or the same gender? There's a difference between mentorship and sponsorship. Mentors are usually for life. Sponsors are more transactional. Um, and, and then some of them can cross over. These people may not be within your field and they may be the least obvious person that you would ever think was going to become your mentor. You know, for instance, when I took over quality and patient safety, I had no idea what I was doing, quite honestly. And my, one of my best mentors was the director of quality, a nurse by background. I can assure you she has mentored me through so many situations and um, events that um, it's quite remarkable the depth of knowledge and wisdom she has. And that's been within OSU. Outside, right now, one of my major mentors um, is Tim Smucker. Uh, he makes jam. He has very little in common with me, I thought. But in fact, he is a phenomenal man, leader, uh, father. He is just an amazing person. So again, think outside the box when you think about mentors because they, it matters and they become lifelong um, investments. Don't be afraid to just put yourself out there and ask. You may ask for a mentor, right, and then they may not, it may not click and it may not work, but you have to keep trying. You will need mentors and sponsorship to be successful in a career in surgery, okay? Even the guys do too. It is a tough career and you're going to need someone to be there to be a sounding board or, or an advocate. So what I will tell you is that the guys have no problem asking. And it's sometimes easier for them to find them because there are more kind of connections they might make because there may, may be more people that look like them. 
initially, I think you need to kind of identify what do you need a mentor for, uh, what are your expectations, both short-term and long-term, so that you can see whether the, the fit is right for you. And it's always helpful to the mentor to know um, why, do you, why have you chosen me for a mentor? What, what would you like me to help you with? And so they can assess whether they have the, the things that you need or they have the resources you need or the connections and, uh, or the skills as well. I would say my, some of my best mentors have not been women and some of my best mentors have been outside of OBGYN. Um, and I look to different people for different things. So, you know, you have mentors, you might have things you admire someone about, but the way they do research, the way they care for patients, the way they do work-life balance, the, the way they handle conflict. And different mentors can provide you different things at different phases of your career. Mentor-mentee relationship is bi-directional, and there's things that you can do as a mentee to sort of hold up your end of the bargain. Um, and it's, I think it's very important to see that as a bi-directional um, relationship to make, if you're doing a writing project together, to meet deadlines, to respect their um, you know, input, to say thank you, that that really goes a long way in terms of a mentor-mentee relationship. So I'm gonna tell you an interesting story about one year ago, and I received an email from a Dr. Virginia Utermullen. When I was a first-year college student at Cornell University, I already had a deep love and passion for research, and I sought out people whose lab that I could work in, and I ended up in the laboratory of Dr. Virginia Utermullen. She was a young assistant professor, which I really didn't even take that into consideration. All I know is she was doing some interesting work, and she seemed wonderful, and I started working in her lab. But the email that I received from her, which was like 30 years later, said this, Gail, I've been following your career with great enthusiasm. I am preparing a talk for my 40th medical school reunion at Columbia, and I would like to tell your story about how you've done in your career despite all the trouble that you had at Cornell. So I thought to myself, I don't remember any trouble that I had at Cornell. <laughs> I'm getting a little older. She must be much older. She's probably confused. So I emailed her back and I said, I'm so glad to hear from you. Thank you for your note. I would be thrilled for you to tell any story you want to tell about me at Columbia, but would you remind me exactly what the problem was that I had at Cornell? And what she told me was this. When I was applying to medical school, you had to, of course, go through you know, the office at Cornell that wrote your recommendations, and you would be assigned to somebody that wrote your letters for you. She wrote a letter for me, you know, I'm, I'm sure. Um, but somebody that was assigned to me at Cornell wrote a letter. And um, Dr. Utermullen couldn't figure out why I wasn't getting into any medical schools. I was being turned down left and right, and she really thought that I deserved to go to medical school. She went into the files and she found the letter that this man had written about me. He didn't know me, he was just assigned to you know, meet with me and write me a letter of recommendation. And in this letter he said things like, her enthusiasm for going into medical school is too good to be true. And a few other comments that she thought were really inappropriate. 
And so she decided to start a, a, an investigation of him. And it turned out that he did not believe that women should go into medicine. And the way he got away with this initially is that he could they could submit letters without the rest of the committee even reviewing the letters or discussing anything. And as a result of this, the policies at Cornell changed such that you couldn't just write a blind letter and send it off. It had to be discussed amongst the committee members. And so without my knowing it, I really you know, changed policy at Cornell. But the reason that I really want to... <laughs> The reason I want to tell this story is because this woman, Dr. Virginia Uter-Mullen, uh, figured this out. She knew I was waitlisted at Cincinnati. She immediately called the head of admissions at the medical college in Cincinnati and spoke up for me. And about two days later, I got in and at the last minute. And that's how I got into medical school. And the most remarkable thing about the story to me is that I didn't even know any of this until like 35 years later. That, to me, is the story of a really true mentor. We've talked today a little bit about leadership and surgery in this panel. You are all leaders. But you had to get a seat at that table. And as Dr. Besner pointed out, there was obviously large barriers. Did you guys have any other barriers in your career, particularly being uh, dealing with gender and being a woman, um, that can kind of give us some guidance as hopefully future leaders in surgery? I think one of the biggest struggles that I faced over time were two thoughts. One is I'm married to um, uh, my partner in life has a, a big career and a big job. And lots of times people would say to me, well, we don't expect of much of you because we know what Jim does. Um, so that was a problem for a long time. And then the other thing that oftentimes people would say to me, well, this might not be the time for you because right now your kids are really young. It feels much more comfortable if you're making those decisions for yourself as if someone else is, as compared to someone else making those decisions for you. As you change career path or you take on roles that aren't as traditional, sometimes you become invisible. And, and invisible in different ways, like invisible to yourself, you're not quite certain anymore, you know, this is where I started, but this is where I am now, and how did that happen? And kind of invisible to your family, because now your life kind of takes on a bigger role. And then maybe even invisible to those that were where you initially started with. So sometimes you, you know, you're not seen as um, having been a faculty member, or you're not have seen as having been a researcher. And so you just have to, recognize that, deal with it, and stay engaged. It's been more recently as I've gotten into more senior leadership where this is now where I'm in the past five years have sensed the, the barriers. It's harder to find those sponsors and those, those mentors um, to advocate for, for you as you go higher. The barrier is um, not being heard at, you're, I'm at the table, but I'm not necessarily being heard at the table. And then it's a, a personal barrier to not let that um, taint you and get angry. If you flip into the negative, if you flip into the, well, I'm the victim, it's not gonna change. If I look back on you know my own trajectory, uh, I started as an intern at the Brigham. I did my whole general surgery residency and research you know, in Boston. Um, the Brigham took eight interns and one of them was a woman, historically. And I fully believed at that time and throughout much of my career 
that if I ever got yelled at or criticized as an intern or a resident at the Brigham, it was because I did something wrong, not because I was a woman. I thought it was completely fair. I never thought in terms of being disadvantaged as a woman at all, and I think it can be unhealthy to think in those terms. Uh, and I really believe that throughout much of my career, but then, perhaps maybe eight or nine years ago, I heard Julie Freischlaw give a talk. It was at an Association of Women Surgeons event, and she talked about the glass ceiling in academic medicine for women. And I really listened a lot about that, you know, to, you know, to what she had to say. And it became apparent to me that there is a glass ceiling. And the question is, how can we negotiate that? Because if we're too meek and mild, you are never going to get anywhere. You have to put yourself out there. You have to volunteer for things. You have to say yes when you're asked to be on committees. Sometimes you might not see the value of being on that committee, but I can guarantee you that if you start out as a member of the committee and you actively participate in the committee, then they're going to recognize your effort, and you're going to end up being the chair of that committee. And that starts to give you national prominence in the field. What I find a little bit disturbing these days is because there's a lot of um, <clears throat> talk about diversity and that sort of thing at various uh, academic medical centers, and everyone is interested in who are in leadership positions to hire people to meet these various uh, metrics. In order to um, demonstrate that you've had a um, you know, fair process of application for positions and things like that. You have to demonstrate the applicant pool was a diverse applicant pool. I received a letter in the mail that thanked me for interviewing for a particular position. The thing of it is, is I never interviewed for that position. I didn't even apply for that position. Uh, somehow my CV had gotten pulled into their, um, you know, into their hands, so to speak. I don't want to be taken advantage of. Um, to fit somebody's um, pool that they needed to show when they had in mind someone else completely differently uh, for the job. Thank you so much. Is there any other questions? Yeah. Many of you all were not aware of gender bias at the beginning of your process, whereas at least myself and I suspect many of you all, going into med school, I was aware of it. I was a women and gender studies major in undergrad, so I was very aware of it. And so don't just notice the macroaggressions, but I'm aware of the microaggressions. You all have worked hard and excelled, partially because I feel like you've been able to have those blinders on of the people that have done things to hold you back. And so how does being ignorant actually help at times? And now that we're all, you know, woke, how do we still succeed as individuals, but also, you know, widen that road? I think that we can actually address micro and macroaggression a little bit better and probably with a little bit more grace than men. Sorry, Tim. Um, because we may experience it more often and it may lead to the glass ceiling. So I think that we need to um, remain positive because we can and because in, we're put in more situations that we have to. Remain humble in our stance in life and what we've accomplished and share. There, there's often a saying that women are not very good to other women. And I think we, as women, at any stage in our life, have to share, mentor, and sponsor other women. But I do think the, the blinders for me, it was just, I just had to work hard. And I knew, at the time, it had to be better than my male comarts, but I was okay with that. Because I was willing, and it made me a better surgeon. And that's what I cared about. I cared about being the best damn surgeon so that when I go to the operating room with my patient, 
that I know I can give them the best. And I think that the other thing we have to keep in mind is what are our ultimate goals? Um, one of our ultimate goals has to be the patients, and you will never get more satisfaction out of your career than if you're patient as well. In pediatrics, we have a, it's a little bit more even because it's the family, and if you save the life of a child, then you know they have a lifetime ahead of them, but their family will be eternally grateful. And that's a huge motivating factor. I want to thank you so much uh, for taking your time out of your day. We'll remember to say yes and stay positive. Thanks.